I, I pray it challenges you. Because what it's done in me is it's made me rethink this whole thing because the question is often asked, do I believe Jesus is coming and do I believe he's coming soon? Here's the text. The text is Matthew 24. Jesus states this way. He said, when the Son of Man returns, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. The challenge with that is that how could Jesus pick something thousands of years past and then turn and say, it's going to predict your future. Because the evidence of that is this. We've talked about these days of Noah, 950 years from Adams to Noah, there's the days. But it's this phrase here in, that I have highlighted in red. Jesus said, when I return, future, it's going to be like an event that happened in the past. And yet, I know that sometimes we read horoscopes and things like that. Hey, what does the future look like? Predict it. But the creator of the world has already predicted your future. And when I read, it's not connected to Trump. It's not connected to Joe Biden. It's not connected to the economy. It's not connected to one world government. It's not connected to the World Economic Forum. It's not connected to some 2030 agenda or COVID shots or conspiracy theories. Jesus connected your future to an event that happened 2,000 years before he was even here. And predicted it to 2,000 years to the future because here we sit with Adam. There's the days of Noah. And Jesus, when he said, when I return, it is going to look like this event that happened about 1,000 years after Adam was made. Which is strange because a lot of times we're looking at the things around us. What, what's going on in the world? The earthquakes, the famines, the food, the evil, the perversion. Surely Jesus has to come back because it's, it's so terribly bad. But Jesus said, if you want to know what it's going to look like, I put the, the graph up there to 2023. Now here's what's intriguing. The moment he says, when I return, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. In 2023, he's not returned yet. So in some uh, strange fashion, he was prophesying to you today. Because you're the generation that's alive right now. So whatever generation is going to come from Jesus' moment, and this is the strange part of Jesus, he's a blip in history. He's nothing more than a blip. 33 years. He didn't even hardly reach middle age and he's off planet. And this blip of time, 33 years, according to the Bible, the earth is 6,000 years old. And by earth, I mean humans. 6,000 years old from Adam until present. We can go through lineages. We've got about a 6,000. In that 6,000 years, there's a 33-year blip. And in that 33 years, only three of those years. So a three-year blip of some dude that is predicting the future of what God is going to do. And he's prophesying to you, and the reason he's prophesying to you is we're the generation that's still here waiting on that moment. So either Jesus is a liar, and if he is, what's the point of being a Christian? But if he's a truth teller, then it makes me want to poke my ears to the wind and go, well, what if he's talking to me? 
And what if we are that generation? What if we're the ones that he's been prophesying to? So when he says it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah, the future, your future, you don't need a horoscope. You don't have to sit here and go, oh my God, what's going to happen to America? Oh my God, what's going to happen to our money? Are we going to go digital currency? Oh my God, what's going to happen? Aliens. Oh Jesus, they're in Congress talking about aliens right now. They just had a big thing in the Congress and the committee about aliens. What if aliens get us? Oh, this is the end times. I can tell because aliens are going to suck us off because it's going to be the rapture and the rapture will be said to be aliens. That's it. They're setting it all up. But what Jesus said is you don't have to sit there and look to the future. You look to the past and the past will tell you exactly what it will look like. What if we're looking the wrong way? What if we're trying to see what they're going to do in Europe? What if we're trying to see what they're going to do in 2024? Will Robert Kennedy get elected? Will Joe Biden still be around? How about Trump? Will he come on the scene? We're trying to figure the future out. And Jesus said, your future is connected to this 4,000 year event, 6,000 from us now. Open your eyes and look at it, Mark, and you will see clearly it will look just like that when I return. Here's where we go. The Bible says, we're going to pick two scriptures of Corinthians to kind of build the premise of what I want to say. The scriptures tell us that the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Now, not many people talk about this because we don't label Jesus by this title, the last Adam. We just call him Jesus. We call him Christ, Messiah. But the Bible connects him back up to Adam. And here's the interesting thing. Next scripture, Adam, same passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians 15. Adam was the first man which was made from the dust of the earth. Jesus, the Christ, is the second man which came from heaven, which is profound. Because what it tells me, there's something about the generation of Adam that when it happened, God quit counting. Because I would say, there's no way Jesus could be the second man. Cain was the second man. Adam had Cain. Abel was the third man. But when the Bible introduces us to Jesus, it tags us to Adam to say that Jesus is the last Adam, meaning something's about to shift. There is nothing else that's going to happen after this moment. OPS, the first man, Adam, was this, but the second man. In other words, my belief is what is about to happen here in this future into this Jesus guy that is going to predict the future of us coming or his coming is that it labels in the second man, meaning once Adam sinned, God quit counting. The reason he quit counting is because God never counts death. He always counts life. Nothing coming out of Adam will God count as worthy. Everything from Adam is unworthy. I'm not counting. That's the first man I made. There are no other men I'm counting because they do not produce life. And if you really get into it and study it, everything God counts is typically life. How many people were on the ark? Eight. But he didn't tell us how many died. He told us how many lived. Eight of them are going to get on the ark. God is always thinking he produces life. So whatever Jesus is trying to do here, whatever Jesus is backtracking, saying your future is going to look like this, it is going to be distinctly the same thing, but the different thing. It's going to produce something that's never been produced before. Here's where it gets interesting. When the Son of Man, Matthew 24, this is our text, same scripture, but an extra verse. 
It will be like it was in the days of Noah and the days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings. I underline this in red right up to the time. Jesus does something for us. He takes us right up to the time of the flood. This guy named Methuselah. It's interesting if you can go to my Genesis teaching, I, I dig it in depth. But this guy Methuselah that lives 969 years and then on his death, the flood hits. Now his name a few weeks ago, you remember, when he dies, it shall come. Now here's the thought. If you've lived 969, do you just wake up one day and go, my knees hurt, <laughs> threw my back out, my kidneys are tired, my heart's wearing. You make it to 969, why do you just die? He did not die because of the flood. He died and then the flood. And the moment he died, Jesus says, at the time of, of the right time, the flood came. When this guy died, he was the man that died. The last guy of Adam's line that ever even got close to a thousand years. Because you can't live a thousand years with God. You'll die in the day you sin. So in this moment when he dies, Jesus links us up to this Methuselah, to this Noah guy. Here's where it gets really interesting. The things that are congruent in both Noah's time and Jesus's time. Because if you think about it, like they didn't have Facebook back then. No Instagram. No digital currency. No Democrats and Republicans. So when Jesus says, hey... That there, thousands of years ago, this here will smell just like it. So know what you're looking at. Yeah. Now this side had humans. Noah's side. They were disobedient and there was one obedient one, Noah. There was a God. He was righteous, but he's also going to judge. And there were trees. That's not too deep. But the trees could produce life or death. And God tells the dude... I need you to go get some cypress trees and I need you to start building this thing called a boat. And I need you to build it 450 by 75 by 45. So Noah goes out, chops his tree, drags his tree. Nothing special about it. It's a tree. The next day he does the same thing. Nothing special about it. It's a tree. It's nothing more than some dude who's stacking trees, uh, according to the text, nearly a hundred years. He does this thing to build a boat. And he's building a boat out of these trees that really mean nothing. They don't mean anything. Even when they're stacked up, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. Oh, cool, dude. I don't even know what that is, but I guess so. I'm sure people are buzzing like, what's the old man doing? He's smoking something. He's probably got one of those funny brownies. I don't know what he's doing. He's building this boat. And it, now watch at 450 by 75 by 45, which was the dimensions that God gave for the boat. Now he could have copped an attitude 445 by 72 by 42. That's plenty big. But until he hits the exact measurement, it's just a lump of trees. It means nothing, it has no value, it has no meaning, it has no purpose. But the moment a human being designs himself to do the will of God, 
and he completes the will of God perfectly and stands back and goes, whew. All right, that's 450, that's 75. Hey, God, I just did your boat. The moment he does the boat, the thing becomes holy and divine. A lump of trees become holy and divine. Because now the lump of trees have been put together, measured by God, and now will be used by God for a very specific thing to bring life or death to people. If you get on it, you live. If you snub your nose, you die. But right in front of your noses, I have been doing something for a hundred years. I've been building this boat. I've been stacking these trees. I've been doing it over and over. The Bible says that he would be a preacher of righteousness. Righteousness, and he would preach to them and he would tell them. And it's not like they didn't see it. The Bible really doesn't tell us what their perceptions are. I only can deduce that their perceptions are the dude is an idiot. And the reason I deduce that nobody got on the boat with him. He did the whole thing in front of their nose and they missed it. It was the most logical thing. Like, bro, what you doing? I'm building a boat for what? It's going to flood. Oh, cool. What's that? Well, like it's going to kill everybody. Like who? God. Who's he? I mean, he's the guy that told me to build the thing, man. Every single day he's, he's sitting here with this beautiful object lesson, but they're blind. Their logic cannot see past this guy's an idiot. But yet the thing that seems so illogical, the moment it was finished, it was the brilliant mind of God that would be holy and divine. And if you get on it, you will live. And only eight people did it. So whatever we think about this future Jesus coming, let's start back here. That whatever's going on back here, as we move forward, there will be less and less people that get it. Because back there, only eight got it. So this thinking of, oh, it's going to be an end time revival and thousands and thousands are going to flock to God. Yeah, thousands may flock to God, but you got to get on the boat. Thousands may have a comment about the boat. Thousands may go, cool, that's the coolest boat ever. But if you don't get in the boat, you miss the boat. So maybe when Jesus says, like it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. What if Jesus is thinking the closer it gets to my return, the more narrow minded people will be to my righteousness and less and less people will be really focused in on what righteousness is. So now we come to Jesus, this 33 year blip. We've moved ourselves a thousand years forward to the last Adam, to the second man. And in his, it's, it's interesting. It's the same story. It's as if we're looking in a mirror. Like Jesus, when I said before, why would he pick Noah? Why not pick David? Why not pick all these? Because Jesus is going to tell the identical story again through the second man. He told the story through the first man and the first Adam. He's going to do the identical story through the last Adam and the second man. They will be the identical story preached to humans so that humans will have no excuse. And so in Jesus' time, what do we have? We have humans that are disobedient. He's got to pay the price. Who's the obedient one now? It's not Noah. It's Jesus. 
We have God who is righteous. That's Jesus who is going to bring judgment. He's going to be crucified. And lo and behold, we have trees again. Because in this second scenario, it's just a clump of trees. It's, it's just a clump of trees. Man, there's no, it's just foolish that you think that clump of trees means anything. It's just a clump of trees they cut down, sawed it up, hammered them together, stuck them on a hillside. Bro, it's just trees. And then all of a sudden, when they stretched him out on it and measured him, that clump of trees became perfectly holy. It's why Jesus says, it is finished. God has measured me and I have fully done the will of God. In other words, Noah measured 450 by 45 by 75. They stretched out Jesus and he said, I did your perfect will. It is finished. The whole thing was measured. And the moment they measured him, the tree on the hill became holy and divine. In Noah's day, the trees became holy and divine when he finished the work. In Jesus' day, the tree became holy and divine when he died and finished it. It's not that Jesus picked the story of Noah because he thought, what a cool story. He picked it to show you that what happened in Noah's day is going to happen in the future. You should not be caught by surprise. It should not take you unaware. Yeah. It should not cause you to go, wait a minute, what just happened? Yeah. How do you live in a culture and watch a man build a boat for over a hundred years and be caught by surprise? You're only caught by surprise because you ignored it. You only got caught by surprise because he's a dummy. You only got caught by surprise because he's a little out there and strange. I just don't see what he's talking about. And you gave every opinion of his little boat. You critiqued his boat. But at the end of the day, when God measured the boat, God said, I really don't care what you humans think about my boat. That boat is going to save the world because it's perfectly divine. Fast forward to Jesus. The Bible says it was the most foolish thing ever. It was a stick on a hillside that hung some Jewish dude that thought he was God. He's off his rocker. They said he was a demon. They said he was just literally a lunatic. And people walked by and would spit on him and would mock him and would say things to him. And when they strung him up, God said, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. In this one perfect sacrifice, it is now holy and divine. And if you dare but believe, you'll have life. And yet, logically, it doesn't make sense. Logically, it does not make sense for me to get on a boat. Logically, it does not make sense for me to climb on this thing. I mean, after all, I don't have time to get on there. He didn't even tell me when he's leaving. He didn't sell tickets. Have you ever thought about that story? There was no, there was no departure date. No, no departure date on the ark. It's not like he's going, hey, on July 12th, you need to be ready and have your passports because we're taken out. Jesus connected your future to a moment that if you're not being aware, you will miss the future. It will happen right under your nose and you'll be going, what in the Sam Hill just happened? Right under your nose. 
Jesus even said, like it, the future, it will be there. In other words, God is going to make it so clear that you will literally have to snub your nose at the logic of it. Why would I want to get on this thing? Why would I want to be part of it? Why would I want to be part of a bunch of sticks that's holy and divine? But here's the thing. God gave that culture over a hundred years to think about it. A hundred years of watching it. A hundred years of hearing it. The Bible says he was a preacher of righteousness. So they heard it. But they didn't hear it. They became comfortable with it. Like I said, it's, it's a clump of trees. But what Jesus prophesied is right up until the moment, till the moment, they just couldn't get it. And what he's going to say to us in the future is I did my best to leave the door open for you. But when it closes, it's not my fault. I've done everything I can do to capture you. So then we come to Jesus, the second man. And when we come to Jesus, it too is the perfect work. It's holy and divine. It's why God, it's why Jesus picked the story. Because the story is as if you're looking into a mirror. Jesus looking at Noah's day and it reflects Jesus. And you see the perfect, the tree, the tree, the disobedience, the disobedience, the righteousness, the righteousness. You see the the perfect work, the perfect work, the divine mind of God for a boat, the divine mind of God for a cross. Both are made out of wood. Both are not holy until it's finished. But then that Jesus, the blip of history, turns from the story of Noah and looks to 2023. And he says, if you want to know, Kyle, if you want to know what your future is like, if you want to know, Shiloh, what your future is like, all you have to do is simply take that moment and shoot it to your future. Your culture will be just like it was then when they were taken by surprise. Like, he's not even trying to trick you. He's not trying to say, gotcha. He literally wants you aware It's such a powerful thing that when he talks about the end and people talk about his coming, it's like this. Hey, you just need to be watching because he'll come when you don't even think about it and he'll take you by surprise and it will be like a thief. So keep your eyes open. Keep looking up. Keep doing what I do because when it does come, you don't want to be taken by surprise. And yet we kind of sit around like, well, I just don't know. What? Well, you know, Jesus, they asked him when he was coming and he said, no man will know the day or the hour. What are you talking about? Yes, that's a scripture. But do you know why he told you that? Hey, when are you coming? Well, now, no man can know the day or the hour. Do you know why that is? Because it's a different hour and a different day all over the planet in any given time. If he said, I'm coming July 31st at 1230. So you got two minutes to get your life together. At 1230, I'm coming. And then I step back because my mind is analytical. Do you know that Jesus is coming at 1230 on July the 30th, 1st, 2023? Woo! Are you ready? My thinking is, okay, what time zone? (laughs) Is he coming Eastern time? Because if he's coming at 1230 on the 30th of July at 1230, he's going to have to come 24 times because there's all these time zones. (laughs) 
And it's, a, it's, it's already another day in New Zealand right now. And if it be true, they've already been raptured in England, so I just need to call them and say, did you get raptured or not? <laughs> So when he says you can't know the day or the hour, he's appealing to logic. There's no way he could logically give you a day or the hour because the planet he created is always a different day and hour. But he can tell you, you can definitely know and smell and sense that the moment is right around the corner. And many people I've been talking to, as with any generation, says, he's coming, he's coming. I just know he's coming. I go, yeah, he's been coming for 2,000 years. The day he rose from the grave, they're like, you're coming tomorrow? And he's like, ah, don't worry about it, just go witness. Well, when are you coming? And he says, well, nobody knows but dad. Dad knows. Now, why would dad... Give me a hundred years of a dude building a boat and give me 2,000 years of a dude on a cross because dad who's coming back really doesn't want anybody to die. So he's patient. Oh, I know this world sucks right now, but as sucky as sucky can get, your father is not in a hurry to come back. I know we are because we're frustrated. I just hope he comes back before we get to the new world order. I don't want to get a chip in my hand. I don't want to get the mark of the beast. I hope he comes back. What if a credit card, remember when we did that? What if the credit card's the mark of the beast? What if our iPhone, oh, iPhone, it's an apple that has a bite in it. Oh, and do you know Siri is Iris spelled backwards and Iris was the god of the green. Oh, and God's up there like, what are y'all doing? Like you literally think the iPhone is going to stir me to come? I'm not in a hurry. Y'all are in a hurry because you forgot your purpose and you've made it about you rather than the world. And so you want me to hurry up to rescue you when what I want you to do is hurry up and go rescue people. So the quest becomes... Now it's forcing me to say in these two mirror images, what could I pull out of it to assess whether my culture is doing the same thing that Noah's culture did? I'd like to attempt to do that in a few minutes. Uh oh, sorry. Genesis 7-1, we pick up the story of Noah. When everything was ready, the Lord said, go into the boat with your family and I can see that you alone are righteous. Did you grab that? I can see. That's God talking. You alone are righteous. According to the story of all the humans on planet earth, it boiled down to one dude that God said is righteous. I've often said in every message I've taught on this that we've made it about evil. God's made it about righteousness. I present to you this thought. If Jesus said, when I return, it will be like it was with Noah, then perhaps what God is looking for is righteous people and he can't find any. We're too busy, too carnal, too fleshly, too drunk, too perverted, too addicted. Oh, but we love Jesus. I love him. God loves me. I love him. Great. But the thing that really resonates about Noah is that God is looking for righteous people. And he said, it was so low, I only found one dude. 
What if we're praying for revival and God is praying, I just hope I find faith when I show up. Even Jesus said, will the son of man find faith when he shows up? Even Jesus' perception is it's not going to grow. It's going to get more narrow. It's going to squeeze him into a place to where we're either willing to live righteously or not. There is no in between. It's going to be a generation that begins to raise their hand and go, I know there's not a lot of us out here that believe this anymore. I know there's not a lot of people that toe the line biblically. And there's not a lot of people that put their faith in Jesus Christ. But count me in. And if they fire me, if they cancel me, if they call me a homophobe, if they call me all these names, if they label me a bigot, if they label me narrow-minded, count me in because I want to do the will of God. And if the Lord looks down at planet Earth, I pray he looks at my life and says, that boy right there is willing to be righteous in an unrighteous generation. So what it tells me, young people, this is for the young adults, what it tells me, young people, it tells me that it's not going to be hip and cool to be one of these people. Oh, I know. Years ago, we gave you the cool t-shirts. What would Jesus do? Brace it. We had all the stuff. It's like, yo, man, it's real hip. It's hip. It's cool. But the generation coming when Jesus comes, you won't fit. You will be ostracized, persecuted, looked down your nose. So if you're going to serve him, it's going to take some chutzpah. It's going to take you bowing your back up and go, well, if you persecute me, then you persecute me. Because blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness righteousness sake. And this generation where we're, we're a bunch of pansies and weak Christians who don't want to be gossiped about and talked about and don't want to stand out. That's the kind of culture it's going to be. You alone are righteous. So that was Jesus. And that very day, Noah goes onto the boat with his wife and the sons and oh, it's in the blue at the very bottom, verse 16 of Genesis 7. And God closed the door. There's coming a moment in your future. And Jesus wants you to know that when God closes the door, there's no second chance. The door is closed. Right now it's open. You want me to tell you how it's open? You're still breathing. If you're breathing, the door's open. But when you die, the door is closed. Sorry. Or if you stay alive and he decides to return and he closes the door on his return and you miss it. Either way, what he tells us is your future is not determined by politics. It's determined by the very divine providence of God. And when God says it's time, it's time. If you're in, you're in. If you're not, you're left behind and you're punished. But yet we live in a generation that snubs their nose. Punish. God loves us all. God loves everybody. I love Jesus. He loves me. True, true, and true. But he says, I'm coming back to a generation where I'll close the door. So this is what I wrote, trying to bring a congruence between the two in your future. The boat was pieces of trees that became the divine architecture. That's the ark, an architecture of life that saved individuals and family. Let's come to Jesus. I love this. Jesus says in Matthew 16, I say to you, you're Peter, and upon this rock, I will build what? Oh, yeah, he's not building a boat. He did the boat. Boat thing way back here. But never be so foolish that you think Jesus isn't building something. 
The trees here built a boat to save people. The tree here built a church to save people. People snub their nose at the boat here. People will snub their nose at the church here. People snub their nose at Noah. People snub their nose at Jesus. People laugh at the ark. People laugh at the church. And what we have today, look at what Jesus said. I'm going to build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. Oh, there's this perverted thing today about the church. Oh, it's just a building. It's just a building. I don't do the building. I do do God without the building. True. This is just a building. Just a building. Insurance is on it. It's a building. But the moment the people come in the building and the trees, because you've been grafted into the tree, you've been grafted into the branch and all the trees come together at one moment to gather to worship and those trees come together and lock arms as brothers and sisters. This place becomes divine and the power of God is here and the anointing of God is here for wherever two people get together, wherever a tree and a tree get together, my power will be known. And yet today people can't stand the church. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. Just a bunch of gospel. I don't need church. That's no different than the tree going, I, I don't want to be part of that boat. Bro, if you're going to float, you got to be on the boat. And yet there's going to be a generation that Jesus will go on to say this. He said, Christ rescued me on a cross. He was hung on a tree. He took the curse. Jesus himself links himself to a tree. And then he goes on to this. He says, oh, but never doubt this, that I've taken you, verse 10 of Ephesians 2, and I've made you into a masterpiece. Do you know who the trees were of Noah? They were cypress. They were cypress trees that when put together perfectly, they became the divine instrument of God for life. Do you know what Jesus is doing? He's taking the trees. It's why you are the vine and he is the branch and he's grafting you into himself. Why? Because he's building a place where people can find life. He wants to hook you up. Listen, this is my thinking. There is no way you can tell me church was a human idea. Here's a human. Hey, I got an idea. All right, go with me. We get all the white people together and we put them in a, in a little home and we give them a good name. We're going to call them first. First church. And then the guy raises his hand. He says, what about the black people? Y- y'all do your thing, man. We'll meet up Friday night for football. All right, we know you do your music, quiet music. You do your black music. We'll meet on the football team. Yeah. But you don't let your kids marry mine. I won't let my kids marry you. Yeah. But let's love Jesus. And the little Hispanic guy raises his hand. He says, uh, uh, "Donde es el baño?" <laughs> I've been practicing for two years. That's what I know. I threw it out there to you, man. I can go to the bathroom now. <laughs> And he says, well, what about my kind? 
And they said, well, man, we don't do the whole vibe of all oh, your kind of music. We don't like your music. So humans, humans put ourselves in little pockets of racial identity and the little pockets of justice and the little pockets of all the little identities we have that have our best music and our favorite little preacher with our favorite little songs and the favorite little things we do. And we call ourselves the church. That's a human idea. But Jesus said, you people ain't building nothing for me. I will build my church. And then the little snotty nosed theologian says, well, what's your idea? He says, all right, go with me. I take a white guy, a black guy, Hispanic guy, Asian guy, Russian guy, Ukrainian guy. I take a drug addict, a meth addict, a heroin addict, a pervert. I take a child molester. I take an adulterer, a lust driven, a murderer, a fat guy, a skinny guy. And if you want to know how powerful this is, I'm going to have a vegan and a meat eater in the same room. <laughs> oh yeah, well what are you going to do? going to lump them all up in a room and I'm going to hook them up together arm in arm and I'm going to do something so powerful that there will be no race, there will be no color, there will be no agenda, there will be nothing that will separate them from me and I'm going to put them in a bag and I'm going to shake them all up and I'm going to baptize them with my power and I'm going to step back and go make God get the glory. That is the wisdom of God. Yes. Stinky people, mean people, fat people, skinny people. Yes. Baptist people, Methodist. Well, I don't believe in women preachers. Shut up and get in the boat. <laughs> well, I don't like tattoos. Who cares if you like tattoos? He's redeemed all of us. Well, I don't like sitting by him. He's snotty. Well, he saved you, so shut up and get in the boat. He needs us all to be together. Yes. Because when we all lock arms and become brothers and sisters in Christ and forget our agendas and forget our justices and forget our cultural identity and we stand and say, I am a beloved son of the Lord God Almighty. I am a beloved daughter of the Lord God Almighty. And those trees join hands. Oh, the divine begins to happen. People get healed and set free and delivered and baptized and neighborhoods get changed. So where we find ourselves is your future are pieces of trees of divine architecture, which is the church. You cannot snub your nose at the church. Have we screwed it up? Yes. Oh my gosh, we have screwed it up. We have messed that boat up better than anybody. And you want me to tell you how I know? Because in that little wooden boat to the left, this so divine... And all those little animals showed up, little kangaroo. He gets on there. You want me to tell you how divine it is? The divine thing is not the devil sinking it. It's going to float. It's the mind of God. And you know what ticked the devil off? I know it did. I know it did. If I was there, I'd say, gotcha. You know what ticked him off? It was so divine that when the, when the lion got on the boat with the zebra, as soon as he passed the door, he was like... Oh, dude, I've never even noticed you. I'm always thinking about eating you. I didn't even know you felt that way. I 
know I ate your kid right when it was born, but I was not even thinking right back then. And he's probably, the lion's probably thinking, what is going on? Like, I used to eat these things. I've, I've, I've just become a whip. Like, he literally looks over there at the little jackal, and rather than thinking lunch, he's thinking, I need coffee. <laughs> Because if you ever thought the most divine thing is not that the wood would float, but that the contents of the boat would not kill each other. So when we come to this divine architecture of the church, the devil knows he cannot sink the cross. He has no power over the cross. But what he does have power over is the contents within the church. And so the lions walk in playing the game, acting all hip, but they never change. And so we bite and devour and kill and gossip and talk and lie about each other. And we want to know where the power is. The power did not leave at the cross. The power left because all of the contents in the church never really changed. We never really loved each other. We never really got along. We never really said, it's okay you did that. I love you anyway. So we get our feelings hurt, our panties in a wad, whatever word you want to use. And we just kill. Even Galatians 5 says you bite and devour each other. So let's end it. Here's my thinking. Hebrews eleven seven says about Noah, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen in reverent fear built an ark. He built it for his household and he did it as an heir of righteousness. So the content of Noah's day that's congruent with ours is there'll be a reverent fear of God that builds a boat for the ark for salvation for Jesus. Jesus says this in Luke 12, 5, but I will warn you, Fear him who after he's killed has the authority to cast in hell. Fear him. Both builders of the boat said the same thing. There needs to be a fear. I present to you the culture today as the culture of Noah's day has lost the fear of God. I just know. I live in it. It, We've lost the fear of God. I can gossip and have no fear. I can lie and have no fear. I can sleep with my girlfriend and have no fear. I can look at porn and have no fear. I can get drunk and have no fear. I can hate people with no fear. So perhaps when Jesus says, you want to know what it's going to be like in your future, there'll be a great bunch of people who will have no fear of God, but they'll say they love God and they will, they will not understand that the righteousness of obedience that has been placed upon them and they will lose a reverence for me. I end with this thought. This is my thinking now. What does my future, Mark 2023, look like in relation to Noah? This is what I think. When Jesus returns, it will be a culture that lacks a reverent fear of Jesus and his church. Just so you know how intricately woven this is, we're in a generation that's deconstructing from the church. Because as I said, we humans have done a poor job. But no matter how poorly we've put it together, the church is still divine. Young people, I don't care where you go, but you need to plug into the body of Jesus. 
You may have been hurt by a pastor, a preacher. You may call it religion. You may call it hypocrisy. It doesn't matter. Don't be sucked into the generation that snubs their nose at this thing Jesus is building called the church. Get involved. Use me, God. I want to be part because when you close the door, I want to be part of your family. Bow your heads if you will. I want to pray for you.